So I guess it wasn't a great idea that uh, they got paroled. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. We've already talked about the Comanche and several other Native American tribes who inhabited the lands that would become Texas. But the late coming Comanche and the tribes of the eastern and coastal regions are only part of the story. Today we're going to talk about some of the tribes that settled north, central, and west Texas. But first, what's your favorite Texas flag? I like the Alamo flag. It's the Mexico flag with just the words 1824 in the center. Oh, that's nice. Well, it's a good flag. But I'm really partial to the flag we fly today, the official Texas flag. Uh, It's what I grew up with. It's simple. It's perfect. It is simple, and it is perfect. But I'm going to say the flag over Gonzales, the flag that started it all. Come and take it, for which this podcast is named and for which we're all so proud. So you can come and take it. Or you can tell your friends to come and get it on iTunes and subscribe. (laughs) The Comanche had the most impact on Texas history, while the Caddo likely had the longest contact with European settlers. But there are many other Native American tribes who made their mark on Texas history. These tribes run the gamut from settled and farming groups to the horse culture plain dwellers. One of the major groups who occupied the area of North Texas where the post oak woodlands met with a rolling prairie were the Wichita. The Wichita were actually a culture native to what is now Kansas and Oklahoma. They were first encountered by the Coronado in 1541 as he searched for the legendary seven golden cities of Cibola. The Wichita had many sub-tribes, and their territories were scattered across much of Kansas, Oklahoma, and eventually North Texas. They were related to the Caddo, and in fact, their language was one of the three Plains Caddo languages. Their language was just a small part of what they shared with the Caddo, though. They both built very similar huts, Each family built two living structures, one fully enclosed to protect them from the elements, and the other was basically a patio to protect them from the rain to allow plenty of cooling air to flow through during the heat of the summer. These huts uh, were made of cedar poles covered with branches of dried grass. They were grouped together to form large towns, and it's probably these second and third hand accounts of towns that eventually filtered down to the Spanish conquistadors and drew them north. Like their Caddo cousins, the Wichita were farmers, and they grew several different crops and even planted plum trees. But unlike the Caddo, the Wichita were also Plains Indians who relied on buffalo hunting to survive. From spring until fall, they planted and harvested crops. But when winter came, they closed up the village and went out to hunt the buffalo. Each spring, the cycle would repeat. Prior to the introduction of the horse, they hunted buffalo by stampede or on foot. Horses were introduced in the early 1700s, and that made things a lot easier and contributed to the movement of the people south into Oklahoma and Texas. While out on the plains, they didn't build huts, but rather lived in teepees, much like other Plains Indian tribes. Tattooing was popular with the Wichita. They even called themselves the raccoon-eyed people because of the number of tattoos that were around their eyes. The Texas Wichita bands also established a reputation as traders. The most prominent of the Wichita sub-tribes were the Tavayas, who moved in the 1700s to the Red River area in north-central Texas. Another branch of traders, the Waco, settled as far south as the location of the city that is now named for them. They were French allies and served as middlemen between the French and many of the other Plains tribes. The main trading post was a fort they built flying the French flag, which Anglos later named Spanish Fort, out of a confused understanding of the area's history. 
There, the Plains tribes could trade buffalo hides, Apache slaves, horses, and mules for French packs of powder, rifle balls, knives, and textiles, as well as for Wichita-grown maize, melons, pumpkins, squash, and tobacco. Other tribes that did not hunt buffalo treasured their hides, so buffalo robes were also likely trade goods. The French and Spanish were also trade partners for the Wichita. These European traders often took the goods they got from the Wichita as far east as the Mississippi to trade with other tribes. By 1720, other tribes were encroaching upon them, including the Apache, and this forced almost all of the Wichita to move south from their Kansas homes to both sides of the Red River. One of the tribes that did not encroach on them, surprisingly enough, were the Comanche. Despite the usual warlike nature of the tribe, they allied with the Wichita, and the two groups would often raid together. Like most Plains Indians, raiding was a large part of the Wichita way of life, and they were more than a nuisance for their European and more sedentary Indian neighbors. It was Wichita raids on the San Saba mission that eventually destroyed it. In response, the Spanish sent an expedition to punish them, but their 500-man army was routed by a combined force of Wichita and their Comanche allies. The more numerous Comanche tended to get the credit, but also the blame, for driving the Spanish out of the High Plains. By the 19th century, the Comanche were clearly the dominant force in the Plains, and the Wichita were in decline. In 1854, the Texas government forcibly settled them onto reservations near the Panhandle to get them away from European settlers. Of course, the Wichita would not have gone quietly if it were not for the smallpox epidemic in 1837, which decimated their numbers. Even confined to the Clear Fork Reservation, along with the Comanche and Kiowa, they did not give up their raiding ways. Within just a few years, though, white settlers wanted the land on the reservation for themselves, just as they wanted the previous lands further east. This meant the Wichita were forced to move again in 1859 into a reservation in Indian Territory, at which point, like so many other tribes, they phased out of Texas history and into Oklahoma's. Of course, they did not entirely stop raids into Texas from the reservations, and the Wichita continued to cross the Red River, but by this time their numbers were so small they weren't a serious threat. The defeat of the Comanche and the Kiowa in the Red River War in the late 1870s finally ended the raiding of Texas by the Plains tribes. Today, there are about 2,000 members of the Wichita and affiliated tribes, and their primary headquarters is in Anadarka, Oklahoma, just southwest of Oklahoma City. Another tribe that had surprisingly peaceful relations with the otherwise warlike Comanche were the Kiowa. The heart of Kiowa territory was the Texas Panhandle, the northeastern part of New Mexico, and western Oklahoma. Like most Plains tribes, they weren't settled into one place, and they traveled and raided over a wide area. They raided as far south as Mexico and as far north as Canada. Although allied with the Comanche, the Kiowa were not closely related to them. In fact, the Kiowa split from the Pueblo-dwelling tribes to their west. They actually share their language, Tanoan, with the Tigua, who now live at Isleta in El Paso, and the Taos Indians of New Mexico. The area that the Kiowa claimed as their territory once contained Pueblo houses. Archaeological evidence indicates these settlements were abandoned somewhere between 1350 to 1400 before the coming of Europeans to the New World. How and when the Kiowa split off from their western relatives, or if it was the other way around, has been lost to time. The earliest encounters the Spanish or later explorers and settlers would have with the Kiowa were with a nomadic plains tribe that was already living in teepees and following buffalo herds. Like so many of their neighbors, the introduction of wild horses to the plains after the Pueblo revolt in the 16th century resulted in a radical change for the Kiowa culture. Within just a few years, the Kiowa were one of the most powerful horse culture tribes of the high plains. The Kiowa were natural enemies of the Cheyenne, the Pawnee, and the Arapaho because their raiding territory covered much of the same ground. 
They got along well with the Comanche, perhaps because their cultures were so similar, or maybe because it was a mutual respect between these two great warrior peoples. They raided more settled and less powerful tribes in the south, north, and west, such as the Apache, Ute, Navajo, and others. Like the Comanche, their richest targets were the Spanish and later Mexican settlements along the Rio Grande, and white farms and ranches as the Anglos in Texas and the U.S. began expanding west. Their raids into Texas were often in conjunction with the Comanche or the Wichita, who they later made peace with. Like the Comanche and Arapaho, the Kiowa were forced into reservation in 1865, but their raids into Texas and elsewhere didn't stop. Perhaps the most famous raid the Kiowa staged was the Warren Wagon Train Raid. A group of Kiowa attacked a wagon train carrying supplies for the forts of West Texas in May of 1871. All of the supplies were destroyed, and seven of the wagoneers were killed and mutilated. One of the five who did survive managed to get to the nearest fort on foot. The commander of the United States Army, famed Civil War General William T. Sherman, was on an inspection tour of the western forts at the time. Sherman had passed through the same area of the ambush less than an hour before, but the Kiowa had not attacked his party. Sherman was notified by the commander of that fort, Ranald McKenzie, and troops were sent out to find the culprits. At the reservation near Fort Sill, Oklahoma, they captured three Kiowa leaders, Satana, Satank, and Big Tree. While en route to their trial at Fort Richardson in Texas, Satank attempted to escape and was killed. The other two were tried and convicted of murder. It was the first trial of American Indian chiefs in a state court. Before they were executed, though, another Kiowa leader, Guapago, managed to secure their freedom while meeting with President Grant to discuss peace. Grant pressured Republican Governor Edmund Davis to commute their sentence to prison at Huntsville Penitentiary, and they were paroled in 1873. The most famous battle the Kiowa participated in would also be their last major one. In June 1874, the Kiowa, including Satana and Big Tree, along with their Comanche allies in the Cheyenne, attacked the hunting camp of Adobe Walls in the Texas Panhandle. So I guess it wasn't a great idea that uh, they got paroled. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, they viewed this settlement as a threat to their lifestyle as it was used to ba- as a base of operations for buffalo hunters. What followed was a three-day battle that found the buffalo hunters desperately staving off their attackers thanks to their fortified position and superior long-range weapons. Even then, the combined tribes came very close to taking the settlement. In the end, however, they were driven off, and this failure seems to have broken their desire for further conflict. Satana was arrested and returned to prison, where he killed himself in 1874. Though a few war bands held out, by the early 1880s, the last of the Kiowa had been driven into reservations in Indian Territory. Big Tree and others eventually accepted pacification, and today the Kiowa tribe is one of the larger in the country, with between 11,000 and 12,000 members in Oklahoma. The Jumano were another group of Indians who shared a form of Tanoan language. There were two types of the Jumano. One of these branches were pure Pueblo dwellers from New Mexico and the hills between the Pecos and Rio Grande rivers. Cabeza de Vaca encountered the Jumano around 1530 on his epic walk across Texas, arriving at a settlement that we call La Junta by later Spanish explorers. After Cabeza de Vaca, it would be more than 50 years before any Spaniards visited the Jumano with anything other than capturing slaves on their minds. In fact, when an explorer named Espejo was interested in talking to the Jumano arrived in 1582, they feared that he was simply another slave raider. However, even after those decades, the Jumano remembered Cabeza de Vaca, as Espejo discovered once he convinced the natives that he meant them no harm. He found that the Jumano were farmers who also crafted pots and created clothing and blankets out of cotton. 
but they were not simple subsistence farmers and did not make these items only for themselves, offering the surplus for trade with other tribes, including their nomadic cousins in the other Jumano branch. By the late 17th century, Pueblo-dwelling Jumano welcomed the Spanish newcomers, as continuing pressure by other tribes, including the Apache, was making them desperate for aid in the form of Christian mission. By the early 18th century, the Spanish had largely lost interest in the Jumano. They focused instead on the Caddo in the east, largely because of French interest in that part of the territory. Looking for new allies, the Jumano turned to their former enemies, the Apache. This alliance was at least moderately successful, though it contributed to the ultimate decline of the tribe. By 1750, the Jumano essentially disappeared from history through a combination of intermingling with the Apache, losses from disease, and integration into Spanish society. The other branch of the Jumano were similar to the Wichita in that they were a semi-sedentary people, farming during much of the year while hunting buffalo during the rest. These Plains Jumano found themselves situated between the two more quote-unquote civilized tribes, their Pueblo-dwelling cousins in the west and the Caddo in the east, and they capitalized on this location by setting themselves up as traders between the two tribes. In fact, when Spanish explorer Alphonse de Leon passed through Texas looking for La Salle's colony, he found Jumano traders at a trade camp in San Marcos. The eastern Jumanos ran caravans transporting products in large baskets that they carried on their backs, as well as using travoy and dogs as pack animals. Unfortunately, this trade came to an end around 1525 with the arrival of the Apache, a much more aggressive Plains tribe that preyed on them. Though the Plains Jumanos were driven out of the state by the arrival of the Apache early in history, they left an impressive heritage. They used the same trails year after year on their trade expeditions, and these remained after their departure. In fact, many of these trade routes were known to St. Denis, who assisted the Spanish in marking the route that would eventually become the Camino Real. For the Jumano, there was no dramatic departure from Texas. Like the Pueblo-dwelling branch, the Plains-dwelling Jumano quietly assimilated into the Apache by the mid-18th century. Today, there's about 300 people who self-identify as Jumano Apache, and they're seeking United States recognition as a tribal entity. The Apache were the first tribe in Texas to look and act like what most people think of when they think of Plains Indians. Mounted on horses, living a nomadic lifestyle, they hunted and followed the great buffalo herds from Canada to Mexico. But like all Plains Indians, this was not always the case. In fact, before the introduction of the horse by European explorers, the Apache lived near the Canadian border, and much like their Wichita neighbors, they farmed for a portion of the year and followed and hunted the buffalo for the remainder. Their language is closely related to tribes from northern Canada and Alaska and only developed less than a thousand years ago. The Apache were still following this lifestyle when they migrated south to Texas around 1528, and there are records of natives living in the Pecos Pueblos mentioning the new people, referring to the Apache, in 1541. By the 1700s, when the second wave of Spanish explorers came to Texas, they had fully transitioned into a nomadic, horse-focused lifestyle. Unfortunately, they would not have long to develop their horse-centric culture. Around 1700, the Comanche followed in the Apache footsteps both figuratively and literally. They too had gone from being farmers to a, ho to a horse culture and followed the same migration pattern that the Apache did almost 200 years earlier. Of course, the Comanche were even more warlike than the Apache, and the Apache had little choice but to continue migrating in the face of the newcomers. By 1740, the Comanche claimed all the territory that the Apache had once hunted, and the Apache were split into two major groups. The Lipan Apache moved all the way to South Texas to the area around the Rio Grande. Seeking refuge from the Comanche, they approached the Spanish and took the security provided by missions. It was not long before mission life did not prove to the Apache's liking. They rebelled against the first mission they entered and then burned it down, 
but the Spanish would create a new mission in San Saba for them. Eventually, they rebelled against this mission as well, mostly abandoning it before it was attacked by their enemies, the Comanche and Wichita, who killed the missionaries and then burned it to the ground. Even then, neither side gave up, and the Apaches tried several more missions, but it was always with the same results. The last mission to take them in was the one at Refurio. The other branch of the Apache who fled before the encroachment of the Comanche were the Mescalero. This group headed west into Jamano territory. They were even less interested in mission life than their southern brethren and did not even make the attempt. In fact, this branch of the Apache became famous for fighting against the Comanche, Spanish, and eventually American encroachments upon their lands. For that matter, one of the Apache became potentially the most famous Native American of all because of his leadership. The famous Geronimo led a band of the Mescalero Apache in raids on European settlements in southern New Mexico and far west Texas. After a Mexican attack on his tribe that led to the deaths of his mother, wife, and children in 1851, Geronimo engaged in a quest for revenge that would last 35 years. He became infamous for his daring raids and escapes from both Mexican and American military forces. His exploits were so violent and bold that he earned the title of the worst Indian who ever lived from white settlers. By 1886, his followers numbered no more than 40, and he surrendered to American forces who took him to a reservation in Lawton, Oklahoma. Today, the Apache Nation is very large, consisting of nine recognized branches in Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Arizona, and numbering around 56,000. The final group of Indians we will discuss today were latecomers to the state, and their stay was tragically short. Despite that, the Cherokee were a surprisingly important tribe to the country and state's history. They did not arrive in the area until 1823, right at the end of Spanish rule. Their impact on the Texas Republic would be profound, though, as they were the adopted people of Sam Houston. In fact, the reason Houston, known to the Cherokee as the Raven, ended up in Texas was because he was following their migration. In addition to their influence over the leader of the Texas Revolutionary Army, the Cherokee had a powerful influence over the native tribes that lived in East Texas, like the Alabama Cushada, the Cherokee were fleeing persecution by white settlers in their native lands in the United States. They were also considered one of the civilized tribes, meaning that they lived not unlike the European settlers when they arrived. The Cherokee fit in well with the Caddo, and their cultures were quite similar. Both were farming cultures and mound builders, though they did not share a language. The Cherokee were farmers with permanent homes, and after centuries of contact with their European neighbors, it meant that by the time they came to Texas, their culture and practices were little different than their European neighbors. They even owned slaves to work their farms. The Cherokee arrived in Texas between the Mexican Revolution and the Texas Revolution. During each of these wars, both sides approached the Cherokee as well as other tribes to request their assistance. Wisely, the Cherokee remained neutral, knowing that backing the wrong horse would be a sure way to suffer repercussions and reprisals by the winner. Of course, given the way history went, it didn't matter very much. Even the Texas victory in 1836 did not stop the Mexican government from trying to recruit the Cherokee against the Young Republic, and they were repeatedly approached to rebel against the Texas government. These political advances from the Mexican government would lead to problems for the Cherokee. Sam Houston negotiated a treaty with them to help ensure they wouldn't fight the Mexicans against the Texas forces. Unfortunately, though he tried in 1837, he was not able to get this treaty ratified when he was in office as Texas's first president. His successor, Mirabeau B. Lamar, didn't have the same respect for the Cherokee, or any Indians for that matter, or Mexicans, or just about anybody else. He informed them that in no uncertain terms that he intended to remove all native tribes from Texas lands, peaceably or not. 
Two months later, in May 1839, Lamar sent troops to remove the Indian tribe. On July 15th, there was a skirmish between Texas troops and the Cherokee, and on July 17th, an all-out battle took place. By the end of the fight, 100 Cherokee, including their 83-year-old chief, Duwali, lay dead. After this massacre, the remaining Cherokee moved to Indian Territory in Oklahoma, joining their eastern Cherokee cousins who had just arrived at the end of the Trail of Tears. Today, there are over 300,000 recognized Cherokee in the U.S., nearly 200,000 in Oklahoma alone. What I think is kind of cool about this, this story is, you know, uh, being part two of it, there's all of this, you know, the Indian culture that we learned about in school, um, particularly being of white males of white European descent in this room, was, you know, here comes the Mayflower, and there was the first Thanksgiving, and corn, and maize, and then people moved west, and there were skirmishes. But I think it's kind of an interesting thing we discovered in the missions episode is that there's a deep and long Texas history that we really don't know that much about, we don't experience in school, in terms of, it's not just that, well, there was a lot, you know, it was just it was cowboys and Indians on the frontier, and there was the terrible Comanche. There was, you know, all of these cultures that were there, and they were all living together, and they were interrelating in their own ways. So it isn't just the relationship between the whites and the Indians. It's the relationship between the Kiowa and the Wichita and the Comanche mm-hmm. and the Apache. Yeah. And, and, yeah, I mean, there was a whole, you know, a whole economy happening before European settlers even arrived. And even when they first arrived, it was a mostly peaceful mm-hmm relationship until you know a lot more europeans came in and wanted a lot more land you know we don't really get into this we kind of got into this with the the missions episode but the the real market difference in the the dividing line really is when the anglos came in and their attitudes towards indians which they carried over from the eastern u.s up to that point as you said scott it was a peaceful relationship it was it was a relationship that had some from friction, but it was there was there was efforts to to combine the cultures or to to accommodate the cultures. When the whites came in, though, the defining characteristic of the relationship between the Indians and the Anglo's is one of conflict and one of negativity. But it's not just when the Anglo's came in. I mean, there's this relationship with the Spanish, right? And, and that's what I'm saying is, is like there well, was there was efforts to accommodate and to 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 coexist. Uh, to and a degree. To a, a degree, to a degree, right. Yeah, and there's even though before the Spanish caused conflict, there were the Indian the different set. tribes right. that had the conflict. Set. The Apache moved south, and then the Comanche came behind them and you know pushed them out of their territory, and right. they were fighting. The allegory to me, in my mind, was when we talked about the birth of the Texas Revolution, we talked about, well, what were the causes of the Texas Revolution? Well, there's the simple bullet list you're taught when you're a kid in school, but really... As we said, you know, you had to unravel 50 years of Mexican politics just to get to how the Texas Revolution really happens. If you really want to understand the root causes, and I think it's interesting with the, the, the vast number of Indian migrations and all of the political change and the interactions between the tribes, there's a lot of that that you have to sort of unravel, mm-hmm. unravel of. There's this nation full of these people with their own sort of tribes and countries and, and families and the way people are living. And then you have these external aggressors that move into the system. You have the Europeans, right. and you have you have the American Anglo's moving into Texas. Well, and and I'm descended from Cherokee uh, on my dad's side in Tennessee and Mississippi, but I don't know anything about that part of our family history because my dad's great grandmother 
I mean, if you see pictures of her, she looks full-blooded Cherokee, and in and my grandfather looks really strongly Cherokee, but her name was Houston, and there was no information about her parents. Uh, it was it was hidden because they weren't supposed to be there at that point in in the early nineteen late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. They were supposed to have gone to Oklahoma. So this kind of always struck me is like Texas has this the presence of Indians, the, the Native Americans is here. I mean, look at all the place names: Waco and and. Tawakini and Tonka and all the lakes and all the rivers. Arapahoe. Arapahoe, yeah, Arapahoe yeah. Road. Arapahoe <laughs> Road, you know, all these places and, and things that are named after the, the Native Americans. And yet we have literally, we have two reservations in Texas, one on as far west away from Texas as you can get. That's about a, what, a two square miles. And the other one in the middle of the big big thicket, that's not even a native native Texas tribe. Neither one of them are native Texas tribes. But my point is, is that so much of Texas is defined by the Native Americans, but there's not as much of a presence here. It's it's more felt in Oklahoma, just across the border. The alternative to that would be, though, is yes, it's not a direct presence in terms of active reservations mm-hmm. in Texas, but there are two parts of that that are. There are a number of people who are either directly descended right. or are full-blooded uh, Native Americans who live and work in Texas mm-hmm. and are a part of our communities. And I actually know one on a, on a very personal level who's a great guy and uh, hoping to get him on a future show to come in and talk about the modern uh, Indian experience in <laughs> right. Texas. But, you know, there's, uh, there's a big powwow circuit every weekend. There's always things going mm-hmm. on around the state in Oklahoma. And there's these, this kind of scene where it's like, you know, there's the, the full costumes and the full dress and they have the drum circles and they celebrate that culture still. And it exists today. But it exists on a level of it's not a kind of government sanctioned reservation sort of thing. The other part of it is is the 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 culture of the in the Texas Hispanic culture. Mm-hmm. And there's a great tie to roots. And even not in that, and just even people like yourself who are like, Well, my great grandmother was this or my grandmother was that and there's that recognition of heritage. In, of a heritage. Of heritage of- and you know, it should be noted that Really, the Texas Revolution, the, the the Texans would not have won if the Comanche had sided with the Mexico sided with Mexico and the Cherokee had sided with Mexico because those three factions with could ex- combine with Santa Ana and basically wipe things out. So them sitting out the revolution really really did have a strategic play in the whole thing. And that's the thing I think history misses is yes. is that the Native American component and forces of Texas, particularly in that revolutionary time, and even after the revolution, when Texas was an independent nation in the state, these were independent nations living in Texas. They were just as capable, they had almost as much military force, they were capable fighters, they had communities, and they had, you know, economic structures, and they had interrelationships with other nations. They, you know, there was this whole other nation Mm-hmm. within Texas at the time that just sort of sat up the battle. Could have right. made a big difference either way. Right. I mean, the, we saw in the Great Raid when a, th- a thousand Comanche and Kiowa <laughs> could make it all the way to the ocean without being even noticed and wreak havoc. So I, I just think it's worth it for us to talk about the Native Americans in Texas. And it's not talked about enough. We Like, like we said in the last episode, in, in history class in seventh grade, you talk a little bit about here's all the tribes that were in Texas. The and, great tribes of Texas. Right. And then... There you go. What you know, but that was why it was important for me in this in the writing of the episode with with our friend James, who who wrote did a lot of the research of this, 
So look and see where they are today and how many people self-identify as these tribes today. Uh, that's really important for us to, to remember and think about. And like, if you, th- you want to know if your ancestry, you think you, if you think you might have some ancestry of Comanche or Kiowa or Caddo or whatever, you know, reach out to these, these tribal organizations and see if you do have that in your bloodline. Before we end, we just want to say a big thank you to everyone who listens to the show. We greatly encourage you, if you are of Native American descent, if you have an opinion on this, if you took seventh grade history and feel like you missed something, why not jump on Facebook, jump on one of the threads and, and chat it up, or shoot us a Twitter, or let's get a discussion going. Email us. Mm-hmm. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to hear your opinion so we can get it on the show and share it with others. Also, comments on the iTunes page really and good ratings really help promote the show. If you really like this show and you want to promote it, make a comment, give us a good rating. It will help us show up better on the iTunes charts. Yeah. If every single one of you that's listening to this show right now went to iTunes, found our show, and left a review or a rating, uh, that would be great. That would be awesome. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can also find our show and other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Matt Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. We'd like to thank our friend James Avendroth for helping us research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Blackguard Press, and you can find his games and fiction work at blackguardpress.com. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes. Do it now! It really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.